Most of our global financial infrastructure was built in the pre-internet world. Hello, I'm Jeremy Allaire, and welcome to The Money Movement. I'm very excited to be here in Singapore during Singapore FinTech Festival and joined here by Sagal Mandelkar, who is at Rivet Capital, and I'm very, very pleased to have you for this conversation. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Glad you flew me all the way to Singapore so we could chat. Exactly. It sort of works out that way. Yeah. Sort of. Where are people? Yeah, absolutely. So this is great. Lots we can talk about, and of course, never enough time. But um, maybe just to start, you've had a distinguished career in both public service and also in the private sector, and now on the investing side at a preeminent uh fintech-focused uh, venture capital firm, but you know, from your work at DOJ through the Treasury Department, um, maybe just talk for a moment about that arc and then sort of what brought you into both investing and sort of your deep interest in this whole blockchain technology space. Yeah, sure. So as you know, before I was at Ribbit, I spent a big chunk of my career in and out of the public sector, both at the Justice Department, Homeland Security, and then most recently as Undersecretary of Treasury for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. And in that job in particular, I had I oversaw OFAC and FinCEN and a policy shop in an intel agency, and it was very much a global job. And so I would travel all over the world. And this picture emerged for me in my travels when I was in emerging markets, the developing world repeatedly when I would meet with central bank governors, finance ministers, heads of state, CEOs of banks, in certain parts of the world, they would say, can you help us get access to U.S. correspondent banking? Right. And of course, I can't tell J.P. Morgan where to bank. Um, we could help those countries from a thinking about compliance, et cetera, perspective. But it was pretty striking to hear so many different regions of the world where they're saying, hey, we need, we really want access to the U.S. financial system. Can you help us? So I went back and I looked to see what, what was going on. Why were these countries asking for that? And it turns out that starting in 2012, we started to see this very steep decline all the way to today of U.S. correspondent banking. Yeah. Um, and there, I believe there are many reasons for that, which we could talk about at length, but net-net, it means that from when you think about things like financial inclusion, access to the dollar, U.S. economic tools, if Western banks or U.S. banks are getting out of those regions, there's a lot to be worried and concerned about. And so I came to the conclusion, our banks are not going back in to those regions. The only way that we were going to change this dynamic was through disruptive financial technologies. Mm. So I left uh, the Treasury Department in October 2019, and I gave myself some time to figure out what I wanted to do next. And along the way, I met our founder, Vicky, who you know well. And although we had very different professional backgrounds, we saw the world in much the same way. And within a week of talking to him, he said, hey, why don't you... Yeah, he was from Venezuela. I he was from Venezuela. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, he said, why don't you, you know, we've always wanted someone with your background. Why don't you think about come joining us? And I took a leap of faith. And here I am three and a half years later. That's amazing. We care a lot about, you know, how do we bring dollars to the world? How do we improve financial access and inclusion? And you know, technology is a big part of this, obviously, and software innovators and other things, right? They're going to be the ones who are improving the financial system in many ways. 
And you, know, you took a strong interest in what was happening with digital currency and with blockchains you know, as a core technology. And I know you've been an advisor to Chainalysis. You guys are investors in Chainalysis and, and also a number of other relevant investments as well. But what is it about this technology that you think can help address those issues? And then maybe related, you know, what are some of the inherent risks that exist with that technology today, right? There's lots of stuff, news headlines, other things, always about like the risks with it as well. And that's something obviously that probably in your prior role, but also just regulators in general are focused on. So opportunity and risk and sort of what have you looked at as you've thought about this particular set of technology and in trying to improve that financial access? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think like many people who've been in this space, you have this sort of moment in time where you're like, oh, I see what's wrong with the current traditional system and why this technology can get us to a different place. And for me, part of that was the realization, A, that most of our global financial infrastructure was built in the pre-internet yeah. world. I mean, it's Absolutely. really striking, right? Yeah. So the, they did use FTP servers, though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Cobalt, yeah. exactly. Uh, I like to say that, you know, I was introduced to the World Wide Web in 1993, and I thought it was just a fad because yeah. uh, we had DOS, but it turns out there are things that are much better. <laughs> than, um, and I'm not making that same mistake. So that's number one, right? We Like, something has to change, because even though there's been modernization, at the core, yeah. it's very old programming language. And like you, I'm sure I've had all kinds of frustrations when trying to engage in the banking world. Uh, and then you start to interact with the technology. You start to meet all kinds of developers, computer scientists, cryptographers, wh whatever it is. And you really start to get excited about what the world can look like with global blockchains. You yeah. start to think about the fact that going back to that problem I mentioned before, access to dollars. Well, with a stablecoin, with USDC, yeah. People who are living in countries of hyperinflation can instantly get access to something much steadier that's more meaningful to yeah. them. They can put their money into what, you know, some people call digital gold, Bitcoin. It's really incredible that no matter where you are in the world, um, if you have some kind of internet access, you can participate in this economy. And so yeah. then you start to see like, oh, what are the real possibilities here? Uh, and they're amazing and fascinating and a lot to be excited about. So you got hooked and you've been, you know, you know, trying to figure this out. I like to refer to this as the internet financial system, right? We have the legacy financial system. We have this internet financial system. And it is literally built from the ground up on the internet. You know, the base layer of money is built, you know, as software-based. Yes, there's an external database with the dollars at the Fed, in our case, so to speak, but um, but this internet financial system is still emergent, and we've seen you know obviously growth in some of these emerging markets. We've seen growth as an investing technology, cross-border technology. But everyone's sort of looking at this and saying, okay, how does this become mainstream scale? Like billions of people accessing this and using it, and so we've had compliance and regulation two sides of the same coin in some cases have been like these vexing issues. Like banks haven't wanted to bank this sector because of the difficulty in, in meeting what they perceive to be, you know, their compliance requirements. And then you have an entire industry all around the world with kind of 
emerging compliance rules, VASP rules, other things. But let's just say offshore actors that are not as interested in pursuing those. And so you have this very complicated market with this. When you imagine how we get to mainstream scale, what changes do you think are necessary? What are the avenues? And from an investor lens, I'm assuming you look at this as like, what are the problems to be solved to get from where we are today to billions of, of individuals and households and firms and others, depending on this? Well, first and foremost, you know, like so many things, we actually need regulators to get much more comfortable with it because once you bring this technology into the regulated space and you don't have regulators who are saying you can stay, I don't understand it. I need, you need to stay away from it. Then people are going to just naturally become, I think, more comfortable with it. And actually, I think we've sort of overcomplicated that problem. When I was at Treasury, I, I started in 2017. FinCEN had already... Yeah, um, 2013. 2013, yeah. they said if I couldn't start my company without that yeah, ex- regulation. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was Jen Calvary at the time I who remember. was... So Jen said, look, it looks like you're involved in money transmittal. You all look like money service businesses to me. So you yeah. have to build out financial crimes programs, et, yep. et cetera. And then I came in 2017 and I saw, look, there are really only three countries at the time in the world uh, that had the kind of regulation that we had. It was the U.S., it was Japan, and Australia. So we were ahead yeah, no, at the I time. I tell people that like the U.S. is like, I was like, actually, no. The U.S. was the very first country very in the world first. to regulate intermediaries exactly. in the space. I have a funny story. I'll just quick tangent, yeah. which is that when, when I was putting together the company and I had Jim Breyer and Excel and others wanted to invest... I used my own money to hire Promontory Financial Group to do diligence with the Treasury Department as to like, if I build what I'm trying to build, like, can I do it? Is it legal? Like, or is this just going to be like money down the drain? (laughs) um, But I I did that because I wanted to get a a strong point of view from a regulatory perspective and and got very clear indications like, no, you you could do this. You just, here's what it takes. And so it's like, okay, this is going to be very expensive and a big investment, but like we want to be kind of compliance first. And yeah. so, but the U.S. had that framework. We had that. And yeah. that was visionary at the time and visionary yeah. of you to take that leap of faith. And by the way, so like 2017, I said, we have to change something. It's not having only three countries in the world with this kind of AML framework right. isn't sustainable. So we launched this massive push to get countries all over the world to have a similar set of rules yeah. because you know, otherwise, bad actors are just going to go to the to the jurisdictions that don't have that rules. Right. And and by the way, on the AML side, we were really successful. And then we thought about, and you have all these countries around the world that are really now taking it more mm-hmm. seriously. In 2019, we issued guidance, which became very well known because we wanted to tell people what the rules of the road were. Because when they know what the rules of the road are, then they know what the boundaries are, yeah. how they can operate. Something has changed since then. There's just been a massive reluctance to do that from some regulators, um, which I think when that piece changes, when other regulators say, oh, okay, if I want to protect investors, maybe I should tell them what the rules of the road are. Maybe I should mandate things like disclosure, right. chief risk officers, yeah. compliance officers, right. segregation of customer assets. Those are things we can solve for. And I totally. completely believe that we will. And well, in many parts of the world, we are, right? In many Here parts in Singapore, of the world, for that's example. right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. In Singapore, they have really, they've issued rules. Not everyone's loved them, not, but they've been very experimental. They're interacting with the technology. They're encouraging tokenization of 
working with banks, by the way, and with crypto companies. So it is coming, I think. And the thing that's really going to unleash it for the masses is when people appreciate that when you use a stable coin to do payments or cross-border transactions, it's cheaper, it's more efficient. You can do it in a compliant way. By the way, I I actually think at the end of the day, we're going to be better with crypto when it comes to AML than we are with traditional finance. I want to talk about that. Absolutely. Maybe a bridge to that topic, which is there's sort of this tension that exists in the industry around blockchains are transparent and you have all the analytics and like they're actually terrible for criminals and so on and so forth, right? And obviously, you know, there's another view which says this is the ideal thing in the world for criminals and and so on and so forth. And obviously, it's probably somewhere in the middle, right? There's a very strong, deep libertarian view on one side and, and then I think a very conservative view on the other. And it's probably somewhere in the middle. But we do need to see the promulgation of things like the travel rule and these kinds of expectations that exist in the traditional financial system, like if you're moving large sums of money, like that there should be a record and that you should kind of know your counterparties and like it becomes difficult to maintain financial integrity without those kinds of things. And what do you think some of the steps are that are needed to get there on a global basis, not just in the US? One of the things I think that we need is a lot more openness by policymakers and regulators to experiment with a technology. You know, if you're in the U.S. today and you're a regulator, you can't have any crypto for the most part. I mean, it's pretty, even a stable coin. I I actually have this analogy I use now that like, if you're at the Fed, you can have a dollar, even though you have influence over monetary policy, the dollar goes up and down. What's the difference between that and having a stable coin? And yet yeah. we have these extraordinarily arcane yeah. rules completely disconnected from what this technology is and what it's doing. That's number one. So you need regulators to interact with the technology. Number two, I'm just someone who's always believed that if you put a set of developers, software engineers, computer scientists, and you tell them, hey, we have this new functionality, we need to figure out how to do things like on-chain compliance, identity, embedded identity, et cetera. They are going to figure it out. I actually think at the end of the day, because you have this massive amount of talent thinking about how to solve for those problems, this sector is going to be better (laughs) at AML than what you have in traditional finance. Because by the way, there are a lot of problems with how AML is done in lots of different ways. I could, won't bore you with, but could talk to you about Well, I mean, I think that the whole model of replicating all this PII all over the place and creating these honeypots of data and actually using technologies that are not very good at security to even transmit and store all of that. That's so right. this is fragile, right? Yeah. Uh, it's like actually it creates well, a, the conditions that uh, allow for yeah. bigger exploits. Well, think about the fact that if I go to a liquor store and I show my driver's license, right. by the way, not only the person who's looking to make sure I'm 21 yeah. uh, because it's questionable can see all of my information, yeah. but there are security cameras. Yeah. And where are those security cameras coming from? Where's that technology being mm-hmm rooted out to. So the possibility in our current system to abuse identity, et cetera, they're just endless. I used to prosecute a lot of those cases, right? You have hundreds and hundreds of millions of stolen credit card numbers. And so we don't even have a social, we say social security, but there's no security in the social security anymore. So again, it's put a group of smart people and talk about how we can start to preserve 
privacy, user identity in fundamentally different ways. There's so many different advantages, I think, again, in the long run to how we can use this to cut down fraud, cut down, et cetera, if we're just a little bit creative. Absolutely. Yeah, the the word crypto has so many embedded meanings now, and it's sort of like it's a bad word to certain people, but it's just cryptography. It's just cryptography. Cryptography yeah. is just exactly. math. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about like the best applied math that we have. So, okay, that's a pretty neutral thing. Like how do we use the best applied math to encrypt things, to protect information, to preserve privacy, but also to prove things. Yes. Cryptographic proofs allow us to use math to both shield information, but also prove things like an yes. identity or exactly. that you're meeting a certain attestation or requirement. So I think um, that's another place where I think on both the industry side and on the regulatory side, have to kind of come together and say, look at this material that we have yeah. to work with to solve these problems. Right, and then there's the other piece, which is, when you again, when you think about cross-border transactions, there are all these different intermediaries mm-hmm. in our existing traditional system yeah. along the way that are collecting that data, that are making yeah. money off of you. Boom. You know, you go from one to the other to the other. If you use USDC, if you use, you know, yeah. one of our companies, Sling, like, yeah. it just... It's a great product. It's a great product. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it just moves magically, yeah. compliantly. Yeah. Basically, it's about 50-some seconds, right? So we're so close. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One of the things that we've spent a lot of time thinking about, we actually just started working on a new nonprofit standards foundation with Block, with the Linux Foundation, which is sort of essentially uh, identity credential models that will work alongside, you know, various types of transactions. And I know a space that you've looked at has been new blockchain infrastructure that uses, you know, zero-knowledge proofs and things like that to simultaneously balance privacy and compliance. And where do you think we are in that? Are you optimistic about that technology space. Oh, I'm so optim I'm so optimistic about it. Again, because you yeah. know, we've invested in companies that are working on it. I've worked with some of the best experts really in the world mm-hmm. in that particular field. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm very optimistic about it. I think it's really important, really needed. Yeah. Ten years from now, I think we're gonna forget that we even had totally. driver's licenses because they don't really yeah. Why are we carrying yeah. this paper yeah. with These us? Cryptographic credentials are yeah. So yeah. superior. They're, they're yeah. so superior. And again, my belief is that we can do it in a way that's going to root out the bad stuff yeah. more successfully than what we have today. We just right. have to get to a place where regulators feel more comfortable mm-hmm. experimenting with it, building out standards. I mean, industry yeah. is building out standards, standards in lots key. of different ways. Yeah. We also need to solve for things on the cybersecurity side. I mean, there's still, it's yeah, not a perfect right. system, but there too, we have great company, wallet security companies, Fireblocks, right. you know, who are really pushing the entire field forward. I know you have phenomenal people. It's a big thing. But we are, without a doubt, we're going to get there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm an optimist. I lead through optimism and, and things like that, but I do agree with you. And I think a lot of people just don't see this. It's going to surprise them as these things kind of come online. But yeah, I think it's a complex world <laughs> that we're in. And, yeah. and there's a lot of attention on these issues right now. And the internet continues to accelerate. I mean, AI acceleration, you know, blockchain acceleration, other things. But these issues are really, really core. We have to solve them. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Well, Seagal, great to have you on the show here. and have Thank this conversation. You. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's always great to be with the Circle team, so. Thank you.
Thank you.